Hi, welcome to episode three of the Phoenix cast. Today's episode, Tigers and Lions and Sex Cults, Oh My, um, is going to be dissecting the sexual coercion present in Tiger King. Joining me here today are three of our interns. My name is M. Alves, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm the Violence Prevention Education Coordinator. And I'll let uh, our three wonderful interns introduce themselves. Hi, um, I'm Naomi. I'm also a violence prevention educator. I use they, them pronouns as well. Hi, y'all. My name is Rachel. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm the MSW advocacy intern at the PCA. Uh, I'm Janae. I use she, she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm a victim advocate uh, intern with the PCA. Awesome. Thank y'all so much. Um, And thanks for joining me again. If you listen to last week's episode, then you know that these voices are not unfamiliar. They joined us last week to talk about the villainization of Carol Baskin and the misogyny within Tiger King. So uh, the bulk of what we really talked about is how um, not at all careful and critical (laughs) um, the narrative structure, structure is of the documentary and how it feeds into misogyny and how they ask the audience to make a choice um, and make it really, really easy to make the wrong choice. <laughs> and we've seen that in the media reactions. Would you all agree that that's kind of a good summary of what we talked about last week? Yes, yeah, spot on. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So last time um, we did talk a little bit about how we would get into these sex cults and getting into, um, I believe at one point we even mentioned that's not even getting into the sex cults because there's a lot to unpack there. There is so much to unpack here. Um, So we're gonna start today's episode with a good definition of sexual coercion. A lot of folks um, don't always know the intricacies of sexual coercion. So we've decided to go with a definition from um, loveisrespect.org. So their definition is sexual coercion is the act of using pressure, alcohol, or drugs, or forced to have sexual contact with someone against his or her her will. Um, And that this also includes persistent attempts to have sexual contact with someone who has already refused. I also wanna mention that sexual coercion um, is something that also happens when an abuser or perpetrator sets up an environment that it is impossible to say no in. Um, because there's not actually a a real choice there. And I know that this is something that our advocacy interns see quite a bit. So I kind of want to hear a little bit about um, your initial thoughts before we dive into the specifics of Joe Exotic and Doc Antle and all that's going on there. Yeah, so when I think about um, you mentioning how it creates an environment where, like, it's hard to say no in, um, and specifically about Tiger King, when I think about like Joe Exotic and Doc Antle, um, they're in environments for like these employees, um, whether it's on either of these sites where they're taking care of animals. And when you think about animals, um, they get very vulnerable. They, since they're in captivity, they can't take care of themselves. So if we're going to say, no, I'm not doing something for you, then there might be this sense of guilt. It's like, well, then who's going to take care of these animals if I choose to leave? Um, who's going to provide food for them, who's going to play with them and love them, because I know I can do that. And maybe there's been this culture around, well, no one else is going to do it if you don't. So there's that sense of guilt where like, well, if I leave, then who else is going to do it but me? So just feeling that there's pressure to stay, even if they want to leave. And that's how abusers manipulate people into staying. 
specifically in that scenario, but also like if you think about there's children involved or maybe parents involved or other things related to that. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think that it's it's kind of interesting to watch Tiger King as a professional in violence prevention, right? Uh, because I think a lot of the what we're seeing when it comes to abuse is really, really clear to us. And it feels like we're kind of all just waving and like, it's just... Does no one see what's happening here? Like, this is straight up sexual coercion. At one point, um, they even bring a survivor in um, Mm -hmm. who talks about, like, the, like, you know, everything that she experienced. And it's, it's really, really interesting how she tells her story because it's very, very serious. And then again, that narrative structure, that narrative choice of, like, then it's very, like, juxtaposed in a very jarring way with, like, oh, we're just gonna, like, watch like Doc Antle's like wives handle tigers now and we're going to play some goofy music in the background and it's Mm -hmm. it's again like Janae I I really loved what you said last time about asking the audience to make a choice could you say a little bit more about that yeah it kind of felt like these two things going on at the same time where it's like you know, the survivor telling her story bearing her soul in front of all of these people and then to kind of have it almost made light of like made fun of in in some sense of that word like while she's literally telling you this very intense powerful experience she had and that's not something that's like uncommon right even in the the situations that like Rachel and I sit in on I can't count the number of times I've had someone you know come in and say like oh I told this person and they made light of this situation because it's so normalized in our society and I feel like that in particular was a very good representation of like how we talk about sexual violence and how we treat survivors when they come forward absolutely absolutely so I, I want to move um, kind of more into the specific examples now. Um, so Joe Exotic, um, at one point in the episode, and I think we've all rewatched kind of what we've deemed the sex cult um, episode at this point, maybe more than twice. Um, <laughs> so Joe Exotic, at one at one point, he actually says like, "Oh yeah, Doc Antle, he has his sex cult. I have my sex cult. That's just." yeah, great. The way things are totally normal. Um, and the different ways that some of this behavior is normalized, like with the other animal breeder who is just like, I don't really care what you do with your tigers. Tell me how you have them women trained. Um, like that's what really what I want to, to, to know. Um, so like a lot of the normalization. So I want to kind of get into, um, how Joe exotic targets people. And I know this is something that we've talked about quite a bit. Um, I know that he's targeted vulnerable people, but what are some other patterns we're observing? I feel like a really common one is that he preys on really young people. Like both his husbands, I believe, are incredibly young, or all of his husbands have been incredibly young when he met them. Like, as we know, he he will pick up a lot of his workers from places like Craigslist and things like that because he looks for people who are at the end of their, or they feel like they're at the end of their line. and. you know, I feel like the fact that he preyed on such young men uh, was not touched on at all during the show or that the directors didn't feel that was odd at all. They were just like, oh, yeah, this is just a fact that we're going to bring up about Joe Exotic, that this is normal. I think there's this, um, no, like in our culture, we normally like fetishize youth, right? In a way that is 
really, really disturbing because I think it also, it puts our young folks at risk, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you see these storylines in television um, and then you see real life people who are manipulating young folks. Um, and specifically, one of the things I want to mention about Joe Exotic is how he uses drugs. So he goes from, you know, doing anti-drug, like I think literally dare uh, programming um, mm -hmm. where he brings exotic animals in. And then it's like, don't do drugs because your teeth are going to fall out. Um, which I guess for him is like a, the biggest thing about not doing drugs. Um, and then we know that he uses meth to keep his husbands dependent on them. That's coercion, right? Like he's using drugs and always being like, you know, like I always have this and all you have to do is love me, right? A very innocent, very classic abuser. Um, have y'all heard about Ed Buck? So um, Ed Buck, for our listeners who are not aware, is a very famous donor, um, a political donor, who um, reminds me a lot of Joe Exotic. He is basically who Joe Exotic is if Joe Exotic was a millionaire. And until very recently, there has been a very long history of him specifically targeting black and brown queer men and using meth to coerce them into sex acts to um, enact sexual violence in them, and then had these young men overdose in his homes and die. Until very, very recently, until late 2019, that was the first time that charges were ever brought against him. Um, so I'm very, very much reminded um, of Ed Buck when we talk about Joe Exotic, because I think that this is a very common tactic. Um, I would say that drugs are probably one of the top coercion tools, generally speaking. And I see your advocates nodding for folks watching the YouTube. Can you say a little bit more about how often you may see that? Um, I know for me, um, before I came to this internship, I worked with teenage girls who had been sex trafficked. And for a lot of them in particular, the way the people who were family members uh, would control them and keep them complicit to continue to abuse them was using specifically meth, such as how abusers use sobriety and substance use disorders to control them. Well, and when we even think about, um, like, sexual violence in particular, um, you know, alcohol is the most common, commonly used date rape drug, and we don't talk about that. Uh, people think it's like GHB or these these wild things that, you know, no, it's, it's, it's the bar, you know, and... Um, I think we see that a lot, especially being advocates on a college campus. I know I've seen that a lot. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, so thank you so much for adding that context. Um, I think it's also really, really helpful to know um, how he consciously uses drugs. And then again, going back to that dare programming. So mm -hmm. what we see with Joe Exotic is that he'll literally say anything that he thinks will benefit him. Um, and I know that I saw that even at the end of the documentary where he's like, he seems very remorseful. Right. Um, and I, I, and I don't know if I believe that remorse because there's also those clips of him being like, I shouldn't even be in here. I haven't done anything wrong. Very, very typical abuser tactics. So targeting young folks, um, charismatic and, uh, manipulative in how he approaches people. Um, very similar to the way that Doc Antle approaches people. So I think that's a really good segue into starting um, our conversation around Doc Antle and his 
um, at this point, probably more recognized sex cult and sexual coercion um, situation than Joe Exotic. So I want to hear a little bit about what are some of your thoughts? How do you all view this relationship or relationship? I think like for me, when we started talking about doing this podcast and you were like sex cult, I was like, that is the perfect word to describe what is happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when you look at like famous cults that we think of, it's the same kind of control and manipulation just in a different way on a different pedestal, right? Like, but you're saving tigers and doing all these good things for animals, right? So what I'm doing can't really be that bad, mm-hmm. even though like you're abusing the people who do all of the things to take care of the animals that you said you care for. And I, I also think it's really interesting, right? Like it, it's presented in a very palatable package, right? On the website, even it's like, oh, like come live in this thoughtful community where we take care of tigers and you're going to be a vegetarian. But when we look at that level of control, really, um, of telling someone what they can eat, that says to me a lot about who Doc Antle is. Mm-hmm. And how does he view these women? What I've noticed is that, um, well, there's a thing that he changes everyone's name. Um, like, none of the girls that go there, they never keep their name, their identity. He, they com- he completely separates them from their families. So, you know, it's classic cult behavior that we see. And then on top of that, it's almost like he forgets who they are in replacement for this identity he gives them. So he can't even remember their names or whatever name he gave them. He can only remember them by their appearance. So he'll say that one with the big nose or that one with the big teeth or that one with the red hair, the Italian one. Um, he says things like that to, you know, he's, he's an appearance guy. He's con- and he doesn't even care about who these people are as individuals because he's going to strip that away anyway. So there's this like um, destroying of who they were past, making them very dependent on him, giving them a totally new identity that is completely dependent on this Um, almost utopia that he's built. That's kind of how he views it, at least. Um, And then very, very appearance focused, right? Like we talked about um, plastic surgery, right? The the requirement of plastic surgery and um, the survivor in the, in the documentary, she talks about not remembering, agreeing to get a breast augmentation, right? I think it was, what was it, that she was so grateful for the time off that she just went with it. That level of control, that level of being able to really bulldoze your way through someone's actual wants and desires to get what you want. I view Doc Antle as like the classic charismatic abuser. Like when I think of like a cult leader, um, like he could fill so many different roles of the types of abuse that we often see at the Phoenix Center and on our helpline. Um, what did you all think about his uh, fetishization of Eastern religions? That was really troubling to me. The way that he, um, I, I know that it's very troubling to Indian Americans as well from what I've been able to gather from commentaries from some Indian American uh, writers. So he has this Indian name and then he uses uh, quote unquote Eastern religion to prop up of like, I don't know, like co-opting spirituality to be like, oh, this is normal. This is okay. And that we're actually like a fun, loving, caring world, just our own little utopia. 
what what are your thoughts and feelings on some of that? Um, for me, like when I heard you mention it, I didn't even realize that's what it was. But it also like knowing his character from or just how it was represented in the documentary, it doesn't surprise me he would pretty much just take a culture and try to subscribe it in a specific way and be very disrespectful towards it and it's just not not surprising some horrible white dude would try to appropriate someone's culture part of me kind of wonders you know when we hear um i believe the survivor talking about um the early days of sleeping in the horse stalls and the cockroaches that they slept amongst um part of me wonders how much of uh Eastern religion he used to justify some of that Mm. and to be like, well, you have to suffer. You have to like, to get to the good part, you have to get to this and, and those kinds of things. So I'm sure that he's also been able to, to justify a lot of like the more questionable, questionable behavior that folks may have pointed out through that. Let's also talk about those 16 to 18 hour work days. It makes sense uh, to me that, you know, there's not a whole, lot of uh free time uh to think about or do anything sorry Janae you had a point oh I was just gonna add to that um like 16 to 18 hour days thing it feels like a way to like exhaust them so they don't have the energy to fight back or try to mm-hmm. like get out of the situation because a when you're exhausted your brain doesn't work correctly like it doesn't function the way it should And like, obviously you're physically exhausted. I don't have the energy to do any of those things anymore. So I feel like that's just another piece of the control. And it's not something that's uncommon either. Like I have heard uh, survivors come in and say, you know, uh, my partner keeps me awake so I can't do my schoolwork or I can't attend class, you know, like, so it's, it's something we hear in other places too. This is just on a grander scale. And I think that's what we forget about a lot of what we all the things we're talking about with Tiger King, both this episode and the last one, is that these are things that are happening in real life to real people, mm-hmm. and we're like a lot of people, not not particularly this group, but a lot of people are talking about that like it's a far off thing, and it's out of reach, and it's not. Yeah, something that we see a lot at the Phoenix Center is abusers uh, purposely will sabotage what's seen as like the outside life, anything that will keep they the person who is surviving the violence that is being enacted by that person um, within their control. But when it's this, this setup, this utopia setup, it's, it's not just removing someone from the, or sabotaging the outside world. This is your whole world for 18 hours, 18 hour work days, your whole world, no holidays. You don't see friends and family. He even says that like, if you have, if you expect to go home like for Christmas and this isn't the job for you. And he frames it as a job, even though we know that they barely get paid, they don't really have any choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that also makes me speak, think to like, well, yeah, they can leave whenever they want, but when you're working 16, 18 hours a day, and if many of these women have been there for over 20 years, haven't had contact with any outside friends or family, if they are able to get to a point where they're like, I don't want to do this anymore, they may have not had outside contact with the world for 20 years. They may not be aware of other resources, or maybe they don't even know where their family is. So mm-hmm. when they look at this documentary and might be looking at us and like, how dare you criticize this decent man and yada, yada, you know? 
just like, well, I mean, for these women, they don't have the privileges that we have because they have been so isolated for so long. It's not that easy if you, this is all you've known for 20 years. Um, so just recognizing that for those who just may not understand where we're coming from. And I just want to add that, like, kind of going back to the fetishization thing about um, Eastern culture, it feels like not only that is he misrepresenting this entire culture and putting them in a really bad light in terms of what he's doing, he's using it to justify, you know, pretty much trafficking these women. He's doing labor trafficking. Um, both Joe Exotic and Doc Antle are doing labor trafficking in this instance because they're all being kept in horrible conditions. Um, and then they're joining, they're being forced into the sex cult where they do not have the option to leave. So he's cutting all ties, which is something we see often in abusive, um, you know, relationships where those ties are severed and they don't feel like they can leave because they don't have a way out. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. And I feel like this documentary really showcased that, that leaving is not an easy thing to do and it's incredibly difficult. And this is a really extreme case where we can see that he threatens them and things they love if they want to leave, like killing tigers off that they might be close to any close relationships they can create there. There's a threat there. So that can be extended to pets, children, things we see in our office all the time is like those personal relationships are, are in danger. I was also going to say that, um, isn't, isn't there a part where dark doc Antle even says like they bring up the enlightenment enlightenment thing. And the only way to get there Mm -hmm. is through sleeping with him. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that alone is classic coercion. That is coercion, plain and simple. And the fact that people are not pointing that out is just wild to me when we sit here and have these conversations all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so like, I I think he frames it as both, you can't get spiritual advancement or advancement just like here in a job without sleeping with him. Right. So Mm -hmm. that is, uh, sexual coercion, sex cult, workplace harassment, labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. Again, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I want to go back to also like a lot of these women have been with him for 20 years. They started out living in barns with invested with cockroach, as we mentioned, and now they're living in mansions in his house, in his name. Right. So if that's another level of control, it's like, look how nice I can make life for you. Mm-hmm. Look, look how nice yeah. you've been with me for 20 years. What other job history do you have? What other education, uh, experience connection do you have that you can easily just as easily go back to living in in a cockroach infested place. That's kind of the message mm-hmm. that I get for how he has set up this. Like it seems almost like, look how nice he is. Um, and I think it fosters more of like Stockholm syndrome esque um, behaviors, right? Because I think that's something that some folks may respond to this episode with is like, well, they seem happy, which. <laughs> We know that, like, it's not always clear what's going on behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes psychologically safer for people who are living in situations of violence to not recognize fully what they're experiencing until they're in a safer place. Mm-hmm. So I also want to mention that and say that these are real women who are still there. 
who are still being impacted psychologically in some way. And obviously we don't know them and their specific, the, the, the very specific situations that they're currently still living in. Um, so I just want to offer the opportunity to extend compassion when we're having some of these conversations around Tiger King. Um, I don't know how y'all felt, but I just really think that Tiger King does a um, probably the only thing I can say they do a good job at is uh, making everything a circus and, and using survivors as entertainment, really. Mm-hmm. Would y'all agree with that? A thousand percent. Yeah. It, it's really sad because I know that, you know, on some level, we're having more nuanced conversations about what survivorship looks like and what, what sexual violence looks like. There's a, a greater understanding of sexual coercion now than there ever has been, um, like even just five years ago. The, uh, the conversation around sexual coercion um, was pretty much non-existent, but now it's in the mainstream and we know we can do better. And this documentary made the deliberate choice not to. They also made the deliberate choice to use that follow-up, not to have really critical conversations about what we can do to show up for survivors and to recognize situations um, that are depicted in the documentary in our own life. And instead they gave it to Joel McHale and it was a total joke, which we talked about last time. There was mm-hmm. no sense of resolution, no way for survivors um, stories to be honored in a way that actually speaks to them and not to a media circus. So I, we're going to have to wrap up for the sake of time. Any last thoughts about sex cults and sexual coercion and Tiger King as a whole. I just want to bring up the like media literacy thing that we always talk about, right? Like you can enjoy something and also be critical of it. And a thing can be two things and that's okay. Like it can be bad and you can still like enjoy that this was a bad thing, you know, because it was a circus and it was hard to look away from. So Mm -hmm. I just want to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I will echo that as well. Um, I, I'm pretty well known in the office for, I, I watch all television um, too much television. A lot of it is really problematic and there's always a lot to unpack in all of the television I watch. I still love it. It's, it's sometimes it's really messed up and it just shows that like when we have these conversations, we can do better and we have moved, we have moved really far, right? Like we have more, um, more diverse representation and, um, in in media these days, right? So like, having these conversations pushes creators. So we need to continue this. And that's why we made this podcast. So, and sometimes, yeah. Uh, another point that I want to make is just that uh, the criti- sometimes critical discussion can can really make enjoying a circus, actually. Because it, it's really, it's heartening to know that, for instance, there are at least four people in the world who looked at Tiger King and were like, so is no one going to talk about the sex cults? And that's a really good point to make, right? Like we're able to make some connection around this. So thank you all for joining me today uh, for episode three of the Phoenix cast. As usual, it has been a pleasure. Uh, Please make sure that you are liking, subscribing and leaving a review that helps us get found. And then also know that we're always looking for other topics. So feel free to suggest. Um, As the semester winds down for the Auraria campus, please know that the Phoenix Center at Auraria remains open and we are fully functional remotely. So if you need to quickly reach us, please call 303-556-2255 and you'll be able to quickly reach an advocate on our our 24-7 helpline. Thanks, y'all.
Tune in next week for episode four, Why Didn't She Just Leave, where we'll unpack Unorthodox episodes one and two.